You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The gospel reading from Mark is very straightforward and very simple. John is arrested. Jesus goes to Galilee. He meets, for the first time, his disciples And he calls them, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Behind that encounter and that invitation is a great deal of depth. The salvation story has been ongoing. Revelation has spoken God's word and created and set up redemption. And now the Incarnate One comes and invites followers. Now we'd be making a real big mistake if we limited this call to Deborah, or to Andrew, or to Matt, or to Zach. This is a call to all of us. Jesus speaking into our life, come follow me. And the depth of what that means is somewhat declared in the lectionary reading of Psalm 62. That psalm helps to inform us as to our attitude, to our frame of mind, to our understanding in following Jesus. Psalm 62 is an interesting psalm. It's written for the choir by David. And it has what I'm told in Hebrew has six particles, intensifiers, a way to underscore the sober earnestness of this psalm. It's interesting in the ESV, those intensifiers are indicated restrictively. For God alone, My soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and my salvation. That sense of the absolute ground for what we believe in is only, only in God. The NIV translates those intensifiers as a positive declaration. Truly, surely, yes. So you might read it this way. Truly my soul waits in silence for God alone. Truly he only is my rock and my salvation. Yes, my soul finds rest in God alone. Truly he is only my rock and my salvation. Literally, the first line, yes, my soul is silence for God alone. And that silence 
is not one of fear or intimidation, but one of peace, of rest. On the other side of desperation, on the other side of difficulty, I really have discovered a place of silence before the presence of God. In that place, my soul finds rest. The silence has weighed the options and is delighted to trust in God in the midst of it all, in spite of it all. Jesus will pick up on the language of Psalm 62 and use it vividly in his teaching. He will say in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll conclude it by taking that, that metaphor of the rock and speaking of the man who builds his house upon the rock. And he will use it of Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The psalmist and Jesus together use these Old Testament metaphors to speak of what it is to trust, rest, be silent in the presence of God. But juxtaposed with that first stanza of trust and rest and silence before God is a second stanza. How long will all of you attack me? How long will you batter me? I feel like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. And what I find so striking about that is the juxtaposition of real confidence and rest and peace, as well as the expression of vulnerability, of weakness. And that both of those can be held together positively in the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ who is following him. Should we be surprised that people may not hold us in such high regard for believing in the incarnate one? Should the university student be so surprised that on a secular campus she or he runs counter to the prevailing worldview of the school? We shouldn't be so surprised. And the psalmist here articulates that feeling of vulnerability that I hope all of us kind of feel. Not so strong in ourselves, but strong in our confidence in the Lord. In Christ alone is the third stanza where the psalmist comes back and yes, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. This was a good week for us, for the Websters. Jonah Andrew King was born to our daughter and son-in-law last Sunday morning. Both children have been born on Sunday. Well, I guess they're really spiritual. <laughs> but being again in a small home with a newborn and a three-year-old this week, just a reminder again of the basics of life and what it is to trust in the Lord. In the dependency of the newborn, in the development of a three-year-old, it brought me back again to the comprehensive nature of our salvation in God, in Christ. There's a line here, this is from the NIV, my salvation and my honor depend on God. Yeah, I'm 
really convinced that my salvation depends on God. But sometimes I wonder if really my honor depends on God. That God gives me the dignity or gives me the sense of presence or gives me a place in life that I don't have to achieve or strive for, but it's a gift, both salvation and honor. And I guess that leads to an understanding of the comprehensiveness of our salvation. Living into salvation redefines the life of the disciple in every way. We are saved from sin and guilt, estrangement and death, ignorance of truth, bondage of habit and vice. We're saved from the fear of demons, of life, of God, of hell. We are saved from despair of self, alienation from others, pressures of the world, a meaningless life. We're saved for a purpose, to love God, others, and ourselves. We're saved for freedom, mission, and community. Salvation changes our relationship with God, giving us acceptance with God, forgiveness, reconciliation, reception of the Spirit, and everlasting life. Salvation changes us emotionally, giving us confidence, peace, courage, hopefulness, and joy. I was going through this with Micah, my three-and-a-half-year-old grandson, this week. In fact, there's nothing in this message that he doesn't understand. And I came to this word joy, and I said, Micah, give me another word for joy. And he thought for just a second, and he said, hooray! And I do think that captures it. Salvation changes us spiritually, giving us prayer, guidance, discipline, dedication, and service. Salvation changes us personally, giving us new thoughts, convictions, motives, horizons, satisfactions, and self-fulfillment. Salvation changes us socially, giving us new community in Christ, a compassion for others, and an overriding impulse to love as Jesus has loved. The psalmist is praying against fear, against anxiety, altogether natural, in this human, vulnerable condition in which we live. And here's this statement of confidence. And then he says in verse 9, those of low estate are only a breath. You know, he returns to this theme again of this juxtaposition of great confidence with the human condition. Those of low estate are but a breath. The same word for breath is used in Ecclesiastes for vanity, for empty. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are altogether lighter than a breath. And what he's not basing on humanity made in the image of God here, what the psalmist is speaking to is the human condition estranged from God, apart from God, that will have nothing to do with God. And that condition, in that condition, there's nothing to envy and nothing to fear. It's empty. It's nothing. 
Put no trust in extortion. Now he's going off into how we earn our living. And making sure that we earn our living in such a way as to bring honor and glory to God. Set no vain hopes in stealing from others or robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. You know, as I reflect that God is our salvation and our honor, we live in both a law-guilt culture and we live in an honor-shame culture. And that's why it's so important that we get both of those right. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we really are forgiven and free of guilt. Because of the grace of Christ. Because he took his guilt, he took our guilt upon him. But we also have to get the honor thing right. That it's not our positions, it's not our vocations, it's not our prestige, it's not our family, it's that makes us. Those things can all be so good and such a wonderful blessing. But it's really God in Christ who is our honor. On December 27th, a good friend of ours, Gertrude Reed, from our Toronto days, we spent 11, day, 11 years in Toronto, Gertrude Reed died unexpectedly. She was in her 80s, had a wonderful life. On Christmas, all three of her sons and her seven grandchildren were all gathered together. It was a wonderful Christmas. None of them knew at the time that that was Gertrude's farewell to the family. But it was. The Lord knew. Gertrude reminds me of this kind of confidence in God, in Christ. We met her first at church, but we really got to know her because she was a realtor. And she helped us buy our first townhome. And she never spiritualized real estate. She prayed about a decision like that, and she saw it as an element of stewardship. Over the years, I've gone back to Toronto to teach, and I would stay with Gertrude. A pile of Bibles and devotional books, always on our kitchen table, as she would spend considerable time in prayer for everyone she knew, especially her family. One of her favorite phrases was, now let's be honest. A German who immigrated to Montreal met her husband, Dan Reed, in in Toronto, uh, and just a solid, wonderful Chris, Christian who reminds me in so many ways of the Proverbs 31 description. She was feisty, she was opinionated, she was good-humored, she was fun-loving, she was intense. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom was written all over her life. But what really sealed the friendship early on was when they visited us because Kennerly had just been born. And they drove an hour from the suburbs of Toronto downtown to where we were living. And they brought gifts for Kennerly. But that was only half the reason for the coming. The other half was to say that uh, Don was dying and had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, did not have long to live, and Don looked at us in the clear eyes, explaining his hope and trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don was a CFO of Jaguar Canada. 
a strong believer who lived his faith to the end. And I look at Gertrude and Don Reed as the kind of followers of Jesus Christ that Jesus called his disciples to be. The psalm ends really, again, with this earnestness, this soberness, this kind of positive declaration. Once God has spoken, have you heard him? Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Power and love, both brought together here at the end. And then this final word, for you will render to a person according to his or her work. Now Jesus will pick up on that. And he'll use that in his own teaching when he speaks of the fact that his disciples, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And this will factor in at the sermon at the end, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, that again, it's what you've done or not done. Now, we all here know that we don't merit salvation by what we do. We know that we, what we do is based on the mercy of God. It's because we are in this God only, rest my soul, relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ and in the spirit that we can do. And really, who we are and what we do interface in a beautiful way as we put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.